Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello there, welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter and this is Phil. Hello. Hello. And we're doing another on-location special today. We're at a screening of Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 with some very special guests. Organised by Back to the Theatre in association with Scream magazine, which is great. We're meeting some lovely people already. Yes. And who's here, Phil? Well, it's a real it's a real treat, isn't it? It is a treat. Because you've got Nicholas Vince. Yep. You've got Simon Bamford. Mm-hmm. You've got Jeff Portis. Yep. He did the special effects on Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. He certainly did. And, and Nightbreed. You've got Kenneth Cranham. Kenneth Cranham. Kenneth Cranham. So this is really exciting. Yeah. All the all the all the goodens, all the goodens, and we have seen Hellraiser on a big screen before. We've never seen Hellraiser two before on a big screen, so that's no. exciting as well. So we're going to go now, and we're going to bring to you the Q and A's from this evening. So first of all, we're going to have the first Q and A session, mm. which happened. that's question and answer to me and you. Well, isn't it just? And this happened just before the screening of Hellraiser, mm. and it was with Nicholas Vince and Simon Bamford. And here it is. How did you first meet Clive Barker? Um, I banged into Clive um, on the dildo string in a dungeon. Uh, in <laughs> 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 Not really. I've done how many of these interviews with Simon? He gets asked similar questions every time. I get different answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fascinating. We were. Nick and I were at drama school together in yeah. North London and uh, in Cratchend, and Clive lived in Cratchend at the time. Yes. And I met him because I was doing a production of King Lear there, um, and I was playing the fool. We played all night. <laughs> um, and Clive came to see it and liked what I did and asked to meet me afterwards, um, and we became friends after that. He was an unemployed writer um, and director and actor at the time. Yeah. And he was, uh, he'd moved down from Liverpool with um, Doug, and anyway, uh, to do yes. the dog company, and he invited me, oh, when I graduated, he invited me to join the dog company, um, which was a fringe theatre company, uh, profit share, profit share theatre company, um, but there were never any profits, because all the profits were made, used making skinned men and <laughs> seven heads, and uh, so yeah, I did that for, we did that for a couple of years, and then... Um, we all realised that we actually needed to earn some money from it. Um, so we uh, it disbanded, and uh, I didn't see him for a couple of years after that. And I didn't meet... I, it was a couple of years after I left uh, Mount View that I actually met Clive. Um, I was working in an art framers uh, in Crouchend. I got invited to a party, and I met Clive. Um, can I just quickly ask, has any, does anyone follow Clive on his Facebook? Page. Yeah. yeah. Do you, have you been to his Tumblr page? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> fine, so you get an idea. So I've met him at this party and, um, <laughs> and he asked me to model for him. Um, and I, I did not realise at the time I was one of the first people he'd actually asked me to, ask to model for him. Um, so you will find my face on the one of the books of blood which Clive illustrated. I've got a knife sticking in my head, <laughs> uh, holding up a picture of Clive, um, and that I think is volume four, where he just totally, it's great, he put it up on Facebook the other day, um, where he says, you know, this is a portrait, I did it with my mate Nick, yeah, so I've got my head peeled open, with my brain exposed, and there are needles dropping into it, and then from here downwards there's no flesh, and it's all kind of contorted into penises, and nipples, and so on, um, so he doesn't change, really. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that's how I met Clive. Tell us about the audition process, how you got to uh, hear about the film. Uh, I hadn't spoken to Clive for a couple of years, so I just rang him to see what he was doing. Actually, we went to the Book of Blood launch party yes. when he had his first book published, which was kind of exciting. That's his place, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so I just rang him to see what he was up to, and he said he just had two films um, made in, two scripts made into movies, and one was Rawhead Rex, and the other one was Underworld. Underworld. See, you've been sitting out front, but I'm not told. It was really interesting. Um, and he was really disappointed with the results and persuaded Chris to let Chris him Chris Vig, to let him um, write and direct the next one. Um, so I just rang him at the right time, really, and he said, "Oh, do 
you want to play a monster in it? So I said, yeah, okay. Um, and he said there might be a little bit of makeup involved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he used the same line on me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that was it, really. That was my audition. Yes, that was your audition. Would you like to do it? Hell yes. Um, yeah, they did do a screen test on the makeup. Um, yes. we, we went down and had straws stuck up our nose and our heads encased in um, <laughs> plaster. <laughs> the thing I remember about that is that uh, Image Animation at Pinewood, they had they'd done Mick Jagger's life cast, full body life cast for one of the films. And they're supposed to destroy them afterwards, but uh, it was it was there, so uh, they were there. <laughs> Everybody was going, "Wow!" <laughs> <laughs> He's always been big, so. <laughs> we, we had no idea what to expect. Except I remember when I went to um, Image Animation for the first time uh, to have the makeup test. Um, I think it was Will who opened the door to me. Uh, took me through to meet Bob King. Um, and Bob said, oh, hi, you're a poor bastard. Uh, you're not going to be able to see much. And then he took his fist and put it in front of my face. He said, no, you'll be able to see that much. I couldn't see that much. <laughs> no way, I can see a tiny little pin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had no idea that the makeup was going to be so awful. <laughs> Interesting, I found out, uh, it started off, they kind of put a little bit of black makeup around your mouth, so that, because um, it was about the only bit of you they could see through the makeup, um, just so you couldn't see you through it. Um, and I found out last, last year when we met up for the night read in Leicester Square, that actually the, the, the black makeup got bigger and bigger and bigger, just as a joke. I didn't, didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of, of uh, Hellraiser 2, it was like half the face. <laughs>
Rick starts at eight, um, and then you get this, the other actors arrive, haven't got a clue who we were because they never saw us because they'd always gone by the time we were taken out of the makeup. Um, and then you get the smell of the bacon coming round, and they said, they said, no, no, um, the grease in your skin will actually melt the glue, so you can't have that. Um, but we could have orange juice through a straw. <laughs> or Jack Daniels. <laughs> Eventually, Clyde took great pity on us and, uh, and did come around with a bottle of J JD one day, and we were just sucking that through the school. And one day it did get to me, because it's like sensory deprivation. You can't read a paper, you can't do anything, you're just sitting there with your own thoughts for hours and hours and hours. These days I've had a psychotherapist afterwards, but um, yeah, I did, I did break down and cry one day, and uh, nobody noticed, so I thought, well, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we were laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but I did do, the first day we were filming, I sat down with uh, Doug opposite me, and I'd done all this work on mask work and studying how the Greeks and everything else, and I said, Doug, I want you to tell me how the mask moves, what, what it can do, what, can it, what it can express. And uh, I started to kind of pull subtle little faces inside the mask, and he said, okay, when, when you're ready to start, that's fine. So the, they got bigger and bigger, and eventually I was gurning inside the mask like this, and he said, nope, still nothing. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why I just put my tongue out occasionally, that's kind of all I could do, really. Became, I remember that became your, your thing. Yeah, and so was the chattering. And mine was the chattering, I wasn't allowed to stick my tongue out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just practiced it. And the first day we actually got to the set, nobody seemed to have told the, well, they probably did tell the assistant directors that we couldn't really see. I'm sure they did tell them, but they just weren't listening. Um, so they kind of lined us all up and they kind of explained what we were going. And, they, and then we go, we're part of we're part of Yeah, yeah, what's what? No, okay, I just stand there and okay. Uh, you're going to move over to this mark here, hit the mark, turn to the left, and action was the next thing. And we're like wandering off in completely the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, at, at which point they thought, hmm, the fuck have we got here? <laughs> Where do they get these two from? So eventually it got through to them that we couldn't see. And they, they had this method of uh, these draft excluders, and they'd line us up the direction we were going to walk, and we'd shuffle forward so we could feel the draft excluder, and then turn a little bit to the left and sort of stop. Um, and, and when the house fell on me at the end of the first film, um, they had all this uh, full of earth and polystyrene bricks and everything else. And <laughs> I covered in KY jelly. And, uh, and they said, okay, you're gonna come up Kirsty with a knife, you're gonna hit her and then the house is gonna fall on you. When it falls on you, you collapse to the floor. Okay. So I come at Kirsty with, well, I just raised the knife, I don't know where Kirsty is. Hope she's in front of me. And, uh, and then they go, cut! Cut! What, why didn't you react? I went, oh, have you done it? I couldn't even feel any of the full of stirring. For which point the makeup covered in um, um, KY jelly is now covered in full of earth as well. So they have to kind of clear it up like they were very cross with me. But there's nothing we could do. There some feathers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to go to Rusty hook in the roof of my mouth. 
um, when we was when we were uh, filming that scene. Sorry, but you don't have to. And um, we. <laughs> so I'm standing in front of the pillar, and you get the you know Chanat's tentacle. You know, the classic way. How do you film this? You get in the tentacle, you slam it in your chest, you open your mouth, you scream. That's it. That's all I had to do. So I did that. Behind me, there was a pillar spinning. And from that, there was a piece of wood sticking out, a chain, and literally a 12-inch rusty hook. And as I opened my mouth, it went into the roof of my mouth. I remember very clearly saying, teeth out, nurse in. <laughs> um, after the, kind of into this stunned silence as they realized what had happened to me. And of course, everyone was really pissed off, not with me, um, but because the cameraman had done what he was told to do, and he panned up just at the wrong moment. Um, so I, they did actually show me the uh, rushes, so you can see this hook come towards me, um, but he's panned up just before it goes into my mouth, so it's bad bit. But yeah, that was fun, so I ended up... They took me to the hospital where I could get a tetanus check, and they said, listen, what we'll do is we'll leave you in costume, because if we leave you in costume... <laughs> You'll get seen faster. <laughs> no, this is, this is near Pinewood. They were obviously used to this kind of thing. So like an hour and a half before they did that. And I remember getting very upset in the evening. Once it, you know, I was like, I'm not going to die. I'm just picturing now you sat in the tree after it, and people are walking past it. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, because I was just in the leather, they, let, they took the makeup off me, which is very good of them. Uh, they just left me in the leather costume, so I was looking as if I walked out of an S and M club, really. Nick had a hard time of it. He was feeling really ill one day when he came in, and they, he said to the uh, assistant director, "Look, I'm, I'm feeling really sick. If, if, if I'm really sick, you know, can you get me out of this?" And the uh, client came through and, uh, with Chris Fig, the producer, and said. Nick, Nick, you're feeling sick, is that right? I said, yeah, yeah. If you're going to be sick, let us know. So you can get me out. No, we want to film it! So, I mean, with it being your first film, notoriously, um, there was a lot of script edits. Um, did you just kind of just take it on board and just go with it? Because what happens is basically when you're given, when you do a film, you're given a lovely script and it's all got white pages. And then as you go through, if there are edits and changes and they put, they put in different coloured pages, you'll get pink and green and so on. I think the first one, there were, I don't remember, Jeff might remember better than me or something. There was when the budget increased. When the budget, but then I mean, when the budget increased, that tended I think most of that money came after we'd done principal photography because I remember going down to the studios to see the re-emerging re of Frank uh, Tennis Studios, I think it was. Um, and I said, this is just come along and watch, going and fascinated by this. And, uh, and so I went down and they did all that. I think that's where the money came in. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I don't remember there being that many different coloured pages, unlike Hellbound and Nightbreed. I mean, it didn't affect us enormously. I did have dialogue in the first one, um, but all my lines were plosives. Perhaps we'd prefer you, that was mine, impossible. Um, and when you've got, when you can't put your lips together, you can't say plosives, <laughs> P's and B's. Perhaps, <laughs> so, uh, so they gave all my lines to, uh, to the female cinema. I think that was the day I cried at the makeup, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through all this and I've lost any dialogue. But what happened on the first one was the, um, because the makeups were so fantastic, quite early on, the rushes were sent over to the States and the guys over there realised they got something special just from seeing the makeups and the way that they were working and everything. Um, and that's when they, they put more money in, they said you need to change the ending so we can have a sequel. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and now on to the second Q&A session of the evening. This one was after Hellraiser, but just before Hellraiser 2. And this involved Jeff Portas and Kenneth Cranham, and then Simon Bamford and Nicholas Vince joined them on stage for a big old question and answer session. Big old foursome. Big old foursome. It was joyous. Yes. So here's what happened. Um, 
so Jeff, we can start with yourself. Um, can you tell me how you got into the business? Um, what made um, you want to say? I liked watching movies. <laughs> I always liked watching movies. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the 60s, when I was a kid in the 60s, I grew up watching the Hammer Horror films from 57, you know, The Curse of Dracula, Frankenstein, The Dracula's, all that kind of thing. And I loved watching horror movies. Um, I was nine years old when 2001 A Space Odyssey came out, and I was 17 years old when Star Wars came out. And I just wanted to do that. Um, I started off, um, I told, I've said it and I've been there before, I started off by sculpting monsters on my action man. <laughs> using, <laughs> using, using blue tack and painting them, I still have the pictures somewhere. Um, I then progressed using, um, hopefully some people have heard of Dick Smith, um, using Dick Smith's monster makeup handbook to create more sort of realistic makeups on friends at school. Is he the Burt Whedon of the monster world? He's certainly the Burt Whedon of makeup world. So. Um, but, um, and um, then just went on to sort of friends. I then did uh, a graphics course at college and went on from there. And had various sort of small jobs. And uh, a friend of mine um, happened to have a, um, she was a, a, a close-up magician, had a, a, a link into the film industry that she'd done a party for. So I said, look, would you see this friend of mine? I turned up at uh, Bournemouth Studios uh, in 1983 to talk to Michael Dark who was doing Return to Oz, and at the same time they were doing a film called um, Space Vampires, the game film with Life Force, to uh, Toby Hooper directed. And um, walked into the workshop there, introduced myself to Nick Manley Bokeen, and got a job as a runner. But then we went on to a film called Highlander, um, which halfway through the effects supervisor, Nick Maley, collapsed from exhaustion and <laughs> left the production and Bob and I took over. And it was during Highlander that uh, a journalist called Alan Jones um, came to talk to us and said, I've got a friend called Clive Barker who's interested in doing this film. Would you be interested in meeting him? And we said yes. We didn't know anything about him. At that time, I think the books of blood had just come out and we didn't really know that much about them. So therefore we said yes. We'd moved to uh, Shepherd and Studio to a small workshop there at that time. And Clive came over, talked us through all the bits and pieces. We spent some time at Clive's place in Crouch End and then various other bits and pieces and took it on from there. We've heard obviously from, from uh, Nick and from Simon about uh, the makeup, their experiences with the makeup. What can you tell us about working with these guys on Hellraiser? <laughs> no, um, we were saying just now, I mean, the thing is that my memories of Hellraiser are, we were, we were relatively young, so to speak, um, on a film set, and even though it wasn't by any means a big studio production, um, I mean, Cricklewood, as we mentioned, Production Village, was not even a soundstage, it was a corrugated Nissan club, much like the one in Hellraiser 2. Um, but the thing is that we had fun. We were in a little house in Cricklewood, or on the set, or on the stage, etc., etc. There was, an, I was saying before, there was an AD, uh, an assistant director, who had to go outside during the takes to actually stand by the duck pond to stop the ducks from cracking. <laughs> you can hear them. It was that. It was small. It was low budget, and that was the joy of it. We had fun. We were working killer hours. We were in there at three in the morning doing four-hour makeups. Um, working through till 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 at night, taking them off, getting home by midnight, often back in the next day. But none of us um, had any idea of how big this was going to be. We were enjoying ourselves, creating interesting things that nobody had ever asked us to do before. Anybody can do blood and guts, that's relatively easy. But doing something that you talk about SM zombies from beyond the grave, which is what Clive often referred to them as, is a different process. What are your thoughts on CGI now? A little bit? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I, I, I don't really sort of work with it. I tend to teach this more than sort of like do it these days. Um, it's my really only connection to it. Um, to me, if an effect works, an effect works. That's it, full stop. Um, I don't have a lot of time for people who simply say CGI blur is all awful. There's some really good CGI around. I personally believe that the thing is that when you're watching something that's a special effect, um, I think if you look at older movies um, where you know it can't be real, you look at it and think, well, it's there, but you can see the animatronics moving all bits and pieces. You can see things happening. But to me, the thing is, if when you look at something, I always said, what's the point in going to see a film 
even Hellraiser, what's the point of going to see a movie and simply not believing everything that's given to you in that film? Why go and see it if you're going to sit there and say, oh, I can see that map line there, I can see this there, or that edge there, etc., which I do, but I'm allowed to because I made it. But the thing is, it's just, if you believe it, you believe it. And that's why I watch movies. Yes, yeah. When I saw Star Wars, there was a big spaceship went over my head, and that was it, full stop. Afterwards, I'll come out and say, wow, I believe that. Why did I believe it? How did I believe it? How did they do it? Uh, some CG works, and I believe a lot of people look at CGI and think, it can't possibly, that dinosaur cannot be real, so therefore it must be a, a special effect. And I said, well, obviously CGI. Yeah, of course it is. Mm. <laughs> if it works, it works. And you go back, but you go back to Jurassic Park, 93, 20 years ago, and those dinosaurs still stand up today. And I believe that dinosaur is walking around. <laughs> so but when I watch the film, and when it's not, it's not. It's a special effect. If it works, if it does the job, I'll find it. And the nice thing now is you're now, you're now getting these mixes of makeups and CG which works well. So instead of having sort of like a, um, a bit of black velvet or some black rubber in, in a bullet hole or whatever, or a hole in somebody's face, we can actually see inside that person's face. There's, I'm not going to go to all the instances you can see, but there are loads of them where you can see half a person's face. Um, and sorry, but you compare, shall we say, the original Terminator makeup, where I'm his eyes about two inches out from his head, you compare it to one in Terminator 3, where there's a CG taken out there, it's better. And if it works, it works. It's, it's interesting hearing this about horror films. And when I'm working out how much older I am than Jeff. And uh, it's a good bit, because I saw 2001 when I was 23. But uh, the great thing when I was a teenager, and some of you might remember this, was trying to get into X films. <laughs> when you were about 13, 14, and you'd go to these enormous lengths and wear built-up shoes and put your collar on and do all sorts of nonsense to go and see a horror film. Um, maybe a sex film with Bridget Barger, but mainly, <laughs> mainly a horror film. And uh, one of the great treats of my life was there weren't any perks with being in the air training corps, but I went and stayed in the summer camp and got to go and see The Screaming Skull and something else. Films I wouldn't have been able to see in the ordinary cinema. And so I, it was always something I, I was attracted to, the idea of, of, of being in a horror film. And I used to see quite a lot of Gary Oldman. And when Hellraiser 2 floated by, I could tell that Gary Oldman was envious of me. And I got so few opportunities to make him that I, I had to seriously consider it. I, I had to choose between King John at Stratford and Hellraiser 2. So I went for the short-term suffering. Yeah. And I, it meant I could get a pair of curtains that I had in my mind. And, and I've still got those curtains. And no one remembers who played King John that season. I remember. It took me about three days to read the play. I didn't know what anyone was talking about. And here I am, Dr. Chenard, and Dr. Chenard lives. I mean, it's an accident, but it's because formats keep changing. And every time there's a new format, something like Hellraiser has a new lease of life. And I think it really suits wall screens. And, and this man here, Jeff, him sitting here with me is rather like one of those social experiments where the victim and the torturer sit <laughs> and sort of wonder how each other's getting on. <laughs> how are you, Jeff? No, it's fine. Because what happened, not just to me, but uh, when they did the, the camera test on me, and I got all that stuff on it, and it was seven hours it took to look like Dr. Chenard. I did say to them, please don't put me through this and, don't, and not use me, which is, what, which is what they did. And it took four people an hour to get it all off. And there were bits hanging off all over the place. Bits of, you were like an experiment in the use of glue. All these various burning glues all over you and hanging out of your ears for days on end. And this is the man. And, and they would send cars for me at three in the morning. And I'd drive across a sort of lunar London with no one around. 
and then there would be Jeff and me, just the two of us, and a coffee machine. Now, the costume that I had, you'll see it with my breast sticking out and everything, it used to hurt. The straps would sort of pull you in and sort of hurt you. And I got, got to doing terrible things on Monster Days. I got the wardrobe to turn the fridge right up and I would drink two bottles of white burgundy. Whole two bottles, because sometimes I would always go, ah! <laughs> you could do that, <laughs> No problem. So, there, there were a lot of bad habits that took place, and I'm sure that I'm not alone, am I, darling? No, of course not. <laughs> so, there we all were. But I don't think any of us envisaged that we would be here so many years later and that the film would, would still have an existence. I mean, I've. Has anyone seen a film called Tale of a Vampire? One. Two. That's it. Okay, that's my Japanese horror film. <laughs> Two of them have seen it, yeah. Uh, who's seen In the Flesh? See, I'm doing better with that, but not really that well, is it? Anyway, these are, these are my excursions into, into horror. There's, there's been something else. I don't suppose you can count Hot Fuzz. But, uh, here we are, look, look, they've all seen Hot Fuzz. But, now, what we were talking about in the, in the break is that the, the guys that make those films, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, love their film, just as he loves film, just as I love film, and that, that's partly why we're in all this. And I was playing Broadway when I was 23, and there was this film on, I knew nothing about it, it was 2001. I thought, what's that all about? And I bought a ticket for it, I sat on my own, stoned out of my brain. I used to... When it, then, I would always get ripped going to the cinema. I, I'd get totally obliterated, and I used to get very annoyed if my being stoned got used up by the Pearl and Dean advert. <laughs> when I sat down the front of Lowe's Capital in, in New York and watched 2001, and the ape smashed the skull with the stone, threw it into the air, and it turned in the air, and Strauss played on the soundtrack. The entire cinema was doped and astonished. <laughs> but anyway, that was another time. Watching this, this film you just seen, I know it was between me and an actor called Francis Matthews. Anyone remember him? Hey, look, there we are. There's a very young person at the back there. <laughs> and there was someone else, and I can't, I can't remember who it was. But watching this film that we've just seen just now, I realised that I fancied Claire Higgins Rotten. <laughs> That's what it was all about. And when, and when, when, when Hellraiser 2 floated, floated into view, I couldn't find anyone to go and see Hellraiser 1 with me. No one. I had to go on my own and sit there, just as I've done just now. I think, God, she was beautiful. Wasn't she beautiful? But what was great about what she did is when she hit men with a hammer, all those real men on the set all went, oh Christ, they really... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it really put the wind up there. And I, I think she's quite extraordinary. Do you realise that she's totally Irish, even though she sounds very English? Higgins. Look at those eyes. They are the eyes of Hurricane Higgins. Really <laughs> Irish eyes, what was your favourite? So, what was your favourite scene or your favourite story? The guys spoke about stories on set. What is the most memorable thing for you during? Well, they're not the favourite things. I mean, for all of us, it's possibly the most uncomfortable things that we remember. And um, when I was the monster, they wouldn't let me go to the canteen. I had to go, I had to go and stay in a room somewhere. And they would, they would bring food to me. And I remember 
I remember, done up, and you'll see what it looks like. Maybe some of you haven't even seen it, I don't know. And I was in the studio, and it's very hard to tell where the exits are from the studio. It sort of disorientates you. And I went out the wrong door, and I was in a sort of car park. And there were all these people sitting in a car going... <laughs> and their dogs going... <laughs> and I thought of that line of Richard III, but dogs bark at me as I pass them by. <laughs> That's, that's, <laughs> that's what it felt like to be that monster. And, and, and the days when I was just the doctor in my dark suit and my striped shirt, and I was able in the lunch break to go to the park and things like that, were wonderful because the, the other days really weren't. And also, what happened to me, I lose my head in this film. It's happened to me twice in films. It happened to me again in Pompeii in Rome where they chopped my head off. And so they make a mold of your head. And what happens? is they put gloop on your head and you find out how long 22 minutes can seem. Because halfway through the process it starts to contract onto your head. And when they first did it to me, this lot, I was stupid enough to be hung over. Which really didn't help at all. And, and, and what came back to me, this is what my mind came up with, a story that I'd much, once read Edgar Allan Poe talking about his great fear of being buried alive. I thought, thank you very much, brain. <laughs> Coming up with that one. He did. He designed coffins with sort of belt pushes inside them and stuff like that for himself to be buried in because he was terror he was in terror of being buried alive. And that's what Jeff did to me. Uh, Ken, can I say something? Ken worked, work, work, Ken worked remarkably hard on this in the sense that the thing is that, yes, those costumes were extremely restricting. Um, the first ones that you see on the first film, and they were the real heavy-duty leather thing. You, yours was leather, but should we say slightly better made. So, I mean, we learned a few lessons, our costume person learned a few lessons on the, from the first film. Um, but Ken, those of you who've seen it, knows to spend half the film being carried around by a giant penis, basically, attached to his head. <laughs> <laughs> did himself an injury, the, the, the wire guy, just, we've been talking about all this, it's, there's lots of memories, but we had a lot of crap, I mean, yeah, when that, what, a, what a film set is, it's a collection of obsessions, each person on the set has tunnel vision and only knows about what they know about, and all these things are gathered together like a strange bunch of sort of inconsistent things, and the people, now, there's a big low, roll of lino that comes out the top of my head, not a penis. <laughs> and, and what they would do, they, they had these books, um, these medical books of skin ailments, and they would look through them and go, oh, fuck, look at that, whoa. And they would copy it and put it on, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I've got herpes everywhere on, the, on this roll of lino. And I had a flying harness, and the flying people and the herpes lino people hadn't met till that day on the set. They hadn't thought about this at all. They caught my head out of its socket. I couldn't work for a week. I was completely hurt. Damaged around there. Anyway. <laughs> but he didn't mind too much. No, it was, uh, he, he, worked, he worked very hard. I mean, the thing is, it's what I, it was, there was one point at which um, I'd done Pinhead on the first one. I did Pinhead on the second one as well. And at the start of it, I was going to do um, just Pinhead. And I had somebody else who was going to come in and do Ken's makeup. Um, and he sort of like dropped out of the film, so I just sort of said, okay, I'll, I'll do it, it's fine. So I said to him, can you just tell me um, how many days does um, Pinhead and Chenard shoot on the same day? And they said two, a Monday and a Thursday. They got it all scheduled. I said, yeah, I can cope with that. As long as I can stagger them, I can come in and do one makeup, then do another. And we're talking three and a half hour, four hour, four hour makeups there. Um, and we got to the Monday, that first day. And we put the makeup on. I did Doug first about three o'clock in the morning till about seven o'clock. Roy then took over and finished coat carrying working on Doug. I then started on Ken at about seven thirty with Steve, who was assisting me on that. He then finished, I went on to set with Doug, Ken then would come on, etc. Um, they got to the end of the day and they didn't get seen. And I Ken coming to the door and saying, You actually asked me, I think, could you go on to the set and say, Look, please, I'm in this, can they shoot me? You know, because you were just into character and yeah. Last evening, there was no film in the camera. Yes, yes, I mean, yes. <laughs> going to and they said no, so we said okay, so we'll shoot it tomorrow. So I'm thinking, great. 
So I go in on the Tuesday, do Doug first, then Ken, end of Tuesday, nothing. So we'll do it on the Wednesday. And they did shoot it on the Wednesday, but of course we then have the Thursday shoot as well. So at three o'clock on the Thursday afternoon, having put on two, three and a half hour, four hour makeups a day, twice, for four days running, I looked at my hand and my hand was doing this. And Roy, if you'd ever said that, that's known as wankers joke. Anyway, so they said, yes. They said, go and have a little nap. So I went back to the makeup room and they put a nice piece of sponge rubber on the floor underneath the bench and said, have a little rest. The next thing I know, this man is kicking me. It's 11 o'clock, eight hours later, and he kicked me awake and said, Jeff, we're going home now. And they picked me up and put me in a car, took me home. That was it. I collapsed almost from nervous exhaustion. But he actually, apparently, he rested his feet on me during the entire sort of makeup. <laughs> Memory film. <laughs> 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 you both got coming up at the moment? Uh, Nothing. <laughs> I, I, teach, I teach these days. I, 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 I dropped out of the industry after I worked on Gladiator. And um, as wonderful a film as it was, it wasn't a wonderful working experience. Um, it was just not wonderful. It was some good fun stuff. And I got to meet lots of interesting people and spent three months in Ultra Morocco and whatever. But it's sort of like, I, I still enjoy watching movies. I still, and I still teach uh, makeup effects and sculpting and special effects and stuff. But um, no. Last year I did an Angelina Jolie film. <laughs> now, I've now worked with Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, and Russell Crowe. So I've got lots of stories. <laughs> Things will make your hair curl. <laughs> well, yeah, a couple of years after, more than that, though. And um, when I worked with Tom Cruise, I got cut off by Nokia because I'd spent £280 texting. I didn't realise it was so expensive from Berlin. But, you know, it, it is extraordinary when you work with these people. It's the nearest you're going to get to being in the Spanish court at Velasquez. You know, you're really talking about money and things going on that you know nothing of. I mean, Angelina and Mr. Depp, that's the right one, isn't it? She's with Depp Pitt, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, when we were doing Maleficence, they bought a French chateau for 37 million and the surrounding land for an undisclosed sum. And the little bit of money that I got for going two weeks over is but a nostril hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to throw it out to the audience, but um, Mr. Kenneth Cronin, Mr. Jeff Portas, everyone, thank you. I'll get you back upstairs now. We'll get some questions out to the audience and then we'll put the film on. Who's first? Is that Sean? I just wondered um, what, what um, level of control did the director of uh, Hellraiser 2 have over, over, the, over the movie? Because obviously Clive Barker didn't direct the second one. So, uh, did you have him directed it? Yeah, yeah, Tony, yeah, I mean, Tony directed it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what the question um, well, well, <laughs> Did he have much control over um, what was going to happen or over the course of the film? Or was he. Well, I consulted, um, he brought Pete Atkins, who stayed in a hotel up in Kensington, near Harrods, because um, we went for coffee one day. And I think he and Tony were locked in a room for days writing the script. It's my memory, because I remember Pete occasionally going out for dinner with Pete um, in the evening. So, I mean, it's, Clive had a, you know, was overseeing it. Um, I cannot tell you whose idea any particular piece was. All these things are collaborative. So, yeah. okay. Okay. I was going to say, I think Tony came in a lot when we were building the stuff. So he was always there and looking at stuff. Um, I don't think he wanted to sort of um, um, move away from the, the mythos or anything else, that kind of thing that was set up by the first film. Um, I, th I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was good company. I think we enjoyed his company. I think he enjoyed it. Him and Pete got on very well. There were no major upsets during the course of the film. 
Um, so I, I think he, he, he approached it as the job it was, and did and, make a job. And you'll notice that at the, one of the very last credits on Hellraiser you've just seen is the big thanks to Tony Randall, because it was Tony who got it through a new world, through new world, and Hellraiser got made. He was a huge fan of the prize. Yes, nice person. Look. You all scared me, so which horror monster scares you? <laughs> well, oh. I mean, it, what, what, one night, <laughs> <laughs> Hellraiser 2 was on television. They always have it on about one in the morning, they don't have it any other time. And I watched it and put the wind up me. Like, <laughs> I was going, oh, Christ, oh. <laughs> house on my own, I was really frightened. Of yourself? Yeah, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I definitely think there's a touch of evil about it. Do you agree? More than a touch. We were saying briefly before, the thing is that Ken said after we'd seen Hellraiser, that they are two different films. The, the first one, um, as I said to Ken, our, our early t-shirts on the film that we got given said Hellraiser, a love story. And that was the original title that New World objected to and cut out the love story with it. And um, everybody always said all the reviews picked up on Frank smoking a post-coital cigarette when he's still got no skin, of Julia saying we're going to run away around the, the whole wide world and never find that. That romantic, romantic dialogue works so beautifully. Whereas two is just a trip. It's just <laughs> it's an acid trip. It's just bonkers. But it works in that sense. Um, Opinions on the on the, the other films, they did go progressively downhill. Um, number nine, we won't even talk about. Um, did you work on? Sorry. Did you work on number nine? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know who did that. Um, but can I? Uh, just in terms of horror, I don't find monsters scary. My favourite horror film is Rob Wise's The Haunting, oh, which is still hard to watch now. Um, there are no monsters, there are very few special effects, there is good acting, a good script, and it's fucking scary. There's another one, that's, uh, mine is uh, the one film I remember as a kid not being able to watch and see the end of, Diary of Madman, Vincent Price. I've got goosebumps just yeah. <laughs> um, And it's this, I mean, it's the corniest thing, it's, they shine a light on the eyes when the being has possessed somebody. And I just... Oh, it's been chills now. I watched it again on YouTube the other day, all the way through. And I think it's that. Yeah. Um, Leatherface from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. That's cool though, you're not good. Right? Gunnar Hansen, yeah. yeah. Uh, just because there was no reality TV or anything like that. <laughs> and when it came out, it was so shocking to see this film that was seemed to be documentary. Yeah. Outside, actually, uh, it's a difficult one. I was talking outside because I was saying that as you get older, I, I personally uh, move away from horror. Um, I used to love it. I used to try and steal Fangoria magazine from the local newsagent when I was like 16 because I was fascinated by, by all the horror. But as I got older, I kind of moved away from it. I, I, I was asked to do a screen adaptation of one of Clive's plays, um, so I kind of saw some contemporary ones. I saw um, Hostel and saw, but only really to see where the stand, how far you could push it, where the standards were these days. So I have to admit, I have to admit I'm not a huge horror fan at the moment anymore. I used to be, but I've kind of thrown away. It's not to say I'm into kind of um, Cinderella or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, the gentleman please the chat to us. I really apologise, mate. I forgot you. I have played some times as well. What's his name? What's his name? Anyway, what's the sorry. idea behind this skeletal dragon that takes away the puzzle box yes. at the end of the first film? Because that isn't yeah. anything with films, but only the it was added in as that was part of the adding in to, for the sequel. It wasn't in the original. No, 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 no. It, it was. was. No, it was. It was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, this, right, this was a low-budget film. 
for the extra, when we got, when you were getting some more money, we came back and the main thing that we did was the resurrection of Frank. In the original cut, there was no resurrection scene of Frank. All that stuff that you see there was shot later on at a warehouse in Docklands or something or whatever. And they gave us some money, saved us some money to do, which was fabulous. The dragon was in the original ending, um, and all it was, there was a human skeleton, we had a cow's skull and some ram's horns, and we stuck them together. <laughs> and made some wings and bits, and that was it. And it, it looks like that to me. It looks okay, I mean, you know, for a budget film to make a skeletal dragon fly, you want Ray Harryhausen, and we couldn't afford Ray Harryhausen, so. That was it, I'm afraid. It was just, it was a cow's skull, it some horns, some holes drilled in, a couple of horns put in, a human skeleton, a couple of wings, made a couple of leg bones. That was about it. And then marionetted on the night, very quickly. Can I just do a correction as well? Jeff gave us a bollocking, um, saying we had straws <laughs> up our nose. He said, we didn't do straws they up didn't your nose. straws up our nose. I remember the straws. <laughs> just photographed somewhere. <laughs> Yes. Uh, why was there a difference between Chatterer 1 and Chatterer 2 in both movies? Ah, oh, that's your question as well. I'll step it so often. For years I was saying, because I whinged an awful lot about not being able to hear, speak, or see when I was Chatterer. Um, the actual answer is uh, that in the second movie they wanted. The thing about, you'll notice in the first movie, Chatterer is the only Cenobite who touches anybody. I've always described him to me as the dog in the family. He's the gardener. But the idea was that, so in the second movie, Tony kind of took and repeated that idea further. So there are sequences uh, we mentioned earlier on about um, uh, Doug not being a Barbie with the um, mask on, the surgeon mask on. There was a whole sequence where the Cenobites were chasing Ashley through the corridors underneath the Chennai Institute. And uh, there was a sequence of there could be a me running down the corridor with our eyes chasing us. Very briefly, there was a sequence where I got into a lift and the hand gets stuck in the lift door. And you just follow the hand down as the lift goes down. So you've got a chatter inside the lift. But they kind of cut all that. Uh, all that and then the bit where the eyes get. You did make some pieces. You did make some pieces. You filmed it. You filmed it. You filmed it. Uh, having his eyes, because his, 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 his eyelids have been pulled and twisted. Um, I mean, the Cenobites originally were based on Joel Peter Witkin's artworks, if anybody knows Joel Peter Witkin. Um, he uses um, amputees and dead babies mm. in his photography. Yes. He's a stunning photographer, and Clive introduced us, gave us these books, and said, Look, I love this. Chatterer, there is a photograph of a man with a, a mouth brace, which is what we base Chatterer on. Um, so much of the stuff in there was based on that. Um, and with that, we just pulled them back. So what we, we did, we made some pieces for the new Chatra mass that went over, so he could be the old Chatra, and then have this singer who have his eyelids on, on staple and pinged back so he could see to Chatras. But it never got filmed. Um, yeah, well, it got filmed because it's there somewhere. Right? Yes? What would you The French director who did Martyrs was going to do it, and he dropped yeah, yeah, yeah. out. A friend of mine actually um, shot, um, uh, uh, he's a special makeup effects designer, and he shot um, a test sequence about eight months ago with a new version of Pinhead, which he sent me some pictures of, which is all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying mine's great, all I'm saying is, isn't it, is that why bother? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you look at that, it's like looking at the original King Kong. I like the remake of King Kong, but it was done so differently, that was nice. But the thing is that you look back at that and say, okay, you've got the power, the power shoulders and the, the mullets and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and it's of its time. Um, it's, it, would, it would seem relatively pointless, as were many of the sequels, but the thing is, it's just... I don't see the point yeah. I've seen some interesting concept art on the, uh, on the internet. Um, and if they could recreate that, they, I mean, the, the, their argument is that there's a whole generation that haven't seen it and won't see it because it's an old film, and it would take it to a whole new audience. And, and uh, there is some relevance in that, I think. And but it would be a 15 for the teenagers. Yes, yeah. it would be. Yeah. 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 You know, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, again, yeah. They would try to make it to the largest audience they could. Yeah. 
Trinket celebrates. I've just been in summer. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Is there a show called Twilight? Yeah. Right. There is a film. But there's, there's, uh, there's, I've been working with um, a, one of the Spartacuses. What would that watch about? Liam. Alan, who's in some bloody thing on the television, he's a bodybuilder. I've been doing Hercules 3D in Bulgaria. You know when there's 3D in the title that you're in something well naff. Above a certain level. And they were very they very proud of a certain shot that they'd done and they wanted me to come and see it. And I had to put my own glasses on and they gave me 3D glasses on top of them. And there was this shot along the side of a ship and there's Hercules at the front of the ship. There's me playing some dialogue to him and then they told me to look away. And I looked away for the first time to see your ball patch in three <laughs> I mean, my ball patch has always upset me. Because <laughs> you're all seeing it in lifts or in shops. And you, know, but you don't see it normally. But this one, I've seen, has got sides. Actually, <laughs> raises up at the fucking back of the moon. It's Chapel Street Market, Islington, and my wife was telling the stallholders that I was in a film with Angelina Jolie, and one of them said to me, what's she like? And I said, oh, she's exquisite. My wife didn't talk to me through those today. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I think exquisite is quite an innocent word. <laughs> I thought it wouldn't get me into any trouble. When was the last time you called your wife exquisite? No. <laughs> <laughs> a bitter word, eh? <laughs> So we changed them, we clipped all the tops of the pins, I got some brass tubing 
took some brass nails, cut the tops off those, stuck them to brass ceiling, and every day, there's 120 pins, I think it was, in his head, we'd make a set by pushing the pin through the phone and then putting the brass on top. So deep reading was just simply was going, pulling the bits and taking it off. But that was, that was you know, basically it. I mean, kind of ideas, but we just that's, in, that's interesting, actually, because the, the pins, the like acupuncture pins, actually do relate then to the Chinese map, the beginning of the Chinese puzzle box. There's something I've, I've remembered, I haven't remembered this before, I was on location. Now, what they would do, and they did in this film, is they would purposely overshoot certain sequences in anticipation of the sensor wanting so many minutes taken out, right? And there's a whole sequence in the film, I won't say which one it is, and I, this, it brought to me on location, somewhere in the north, and it was a Japanese disc of Hellraiser 2, and with all of it in. You know, the Japanese somehow had got hold of all of the stuff that was shot, and it was a much longer film. Why they wanted to watch the, that endless sequence, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. In, in Hellraiser? In this one, yeah. In Hellraiser? Yeah, yeah. Hell this one, the one we're about. <laughs> <laughs> I, know in, I know in Hellraiser 1, there was the Prudhoe death suit where she blows into the first guy across the face. Mm -hmm. And his begging was so sort of strong that it was really upsetting on set. <laughs> and apparently there does exist footage of, of, um, of um, um, the guy being pulled apart at the end of the stuff. He says, Jesus wept, which I would love to see because I wasn't there on the day it was being shot. And apparently two people vomited on the stage. A costume designer vomited on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. In Hellraiser yeah. 2, I don't know the sequence. Which one? It's the mattress sequence. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Ah, uh, 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 yes, yeah, so, yeah. Because the thing is, when, when Oliver cuts himself, he really cuts himself. We blunted the knife as much as we could do. And Oliver, who's the same Oliver, the guy in Hellraiser 2 who cuts himself because he thinks he's covered in insects, is the same guy who plays Skin Frank in Hellraiser 1. He's very, very thin. And he just went for it. He had a big piece on with all the bits and pieces all over it, etc. When we took it off, he was slashed because he was just going for it. Somebody didn't realize I'd done that. No. <laughs> carried away. Yeah. <laughs> and that was quite, yeah, that was quite upsetting scene. But they, they do, I mean, that's, that's, that's why we shot, I think they shot Private New, I think Christopher had said, it's a various things that shoot longer on the, on yeah. the horror cell. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you take it to the BBFC, they'll cut that out. Although, strangely enough, we were saying it as well, the only thing that um, the BBC, BBFC really sort of like wanted to play with was the rat that's nailed to the wall. <laughs> they wanted us, we had to take the little animatronic rat, it was just a little motor, we had to take it into the BBFC to prove that we hadn't nailed the rat at all. Oh, well done. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, we could have just nailed the rat at all and built one up. You see what it's like meeting your torturer. <laughs> <laughs> Actors, Teddy. <laughs> Actors are Teddy Penny. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the third shot when the hospital wall opens and Kirsty looks down the corridor. 
just before you see the engineer, you'll see a little shape just move, <laughs> and then move back. And that's Stuart because he walks me. You <laughs> <laughs> couldn't quite see it. Well, I couldn't see it from down there because it was a bit dark and I was a funny angle. It was grainy on the bit on the shelf of the blood. But look, and you'll see Stuart popping out. Yeah. So, but the, the engineer worked to a certain extent. I mean, it was a low-budget film. That's a big creature. There's a man sitting in there with his arms out the top, and there's animatronics in the head. Unfortunately, none in the arms. So when he's scrubbing to the top, he's just going. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it works. Yes, it works for what it is. It works nicely. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest. So we've now got Gary Smart, one of the organisers. How are you feeling about the whole thing at the moment? Uh, after the event, pretty happy, really. I think we've done really well this time. It's, uh, we didn't think we could top Return of the Living Dead and Reanimator, but actually I think we have today. Just tired. Yeah. <laughs> How did it come about? How did the whole Hellraiser idea come about? I've, well, to be honest, it's because of me. I've always been a big fan of Kenneth kind of Cranham, so I just wanted yeah. to get an event with him here. Yeah. So he was our biggest challenge, really, trying to get a hold of him, because whereas the rest of like Simon... Nick and Jeff are on Facebook. Kenneth's not. Right. So it's basically going for agents, really, for him. Right. But actually, they've been fantastic. The agents have. Um, so once we got him confirmed, we just knew we had to do this event, really. Anyone else that you wanted to get that you tried to get? Uh, no, not really. We thought about Doug, but we just thought that a lot of the events Hellraiser, Doug always goes to. Yeah. And the whole point of our events really are to something a bit more of a unique experience. And because Ken doesn't do that many events, mm. we just thought he's our main target really. It's fantastic having Nick and obviously Simon and Jeff as well. Yeah, it was great. We've never met Ken before. It's, it's nice to meet him. Yeah, he's yeah, a great. fantastic guy, fantastic. And what's next? What's next for Back to the Theatre? We don't know at the moment. It's one of those where after the film, we had no idea. We got obviously, we got kind of wish lists really, like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously trying to get hold of the right people now, but there will be another one soon. Um, we've heard a rumour that Robert England may be in the UK soon as well, uh, doing uh, a film. Uh. So if we can track him down <laughs> and get him here. Grab him. Yeah, not around Elm Street. Yeah, that's yeah. our, that's our uh, biggest thing we want to do. Really, it's not around Elm Street. Probably get a better, be- uh, bit better. Sorry, bigger venue as well for it. So. Okay, cool. Well, congratulations again. I think it's been a really good, successful night. Yeah, so well done. It. And we'll yeah. see you again. I'm sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And there we have it. So that's the evening over now. Cool. So we had a lovely time up in Birmingham, in the Midlands. Yeah. Say up for us. It's sort of down for most people. It's in the middle. For a lot of people. Or in a different country for a lot of or other people. Or in a different country. <laughs> yeah, not Birmingham, Alabama, which not some people thought Alabama. we were going to. I'm afraid. I'm Twitter. sorry about that. Sorry about that. We're going to have to organise something in Alabama and we'll come there. Yeah. We're coming there next. All right, guys? Yeah. See um, you soon. Yeah. If you can organise the, um, the plane ticket, that'd be great. Mm. You, so You enjoyed the evening, did you? I did. Yeah, it was a great time. Very nice. Yeah, it was great to see the films again on a big screen. Yeah. And number two, for the first time on a big screen. That yeah. was great. It, was it is crazy, isn't it? <laughs> number two. It's mad. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a complete trip, yeah. I wanted, um, to, be, I wanted to try and look at um, Ken Cranham's face when Gennard turned up as a centre but I couldn't quite see him. <laughs> it's, it was brilliant to sort of listen to his stories about it and then yeah. watch the film. Yeah. And uh, his, performance, his performance still holds up so amazingly. You know, yeah, he's, he, he does such a brilliant performance in that film. Uh, and he's such a lovely man. He is. Very nice man. So, uh, a good evening. Good evening. So, thanks again to Back to the Theatre and Scream magazine and we will all be with you very soon well not all of us I mean just me and Phil we will be with you again very soon for our next podcast so take care check us out on Twitter at HellraiserCast Facebook page Hellraiser Podcast at hotmail.co.uk and HellraiserPodcast.com thanks to everyone who spoke to us this evening by the way as well Uh, it's nice to meet some people who listen to the podcast and if anybody does like the podcast please leave a review for us on iTunes or somewhere like that that would be really helpful that would be lovely and we'll see you all soon thank you very much thank you Phil Uh, thank you Peter Uh, thank you very much goodbye goodbye